0: It's not every day that you close a $13 million Series A funding round, but to do it in a global pandemic is really quite an achievement. That's what today's 40-minute mentor Stefano Vaccino, successfully did with his fintech Yapoli. a feat that is made even more impressive given the fact that he contracted COVID-19 during the race. He is truly made of tough stuff. Stefano has had an impressive and diverse career, pivoting from academia to investment banking at Goldman Sachs, then into product leadership roles in startups, before he took the plunge and set up Yapoli in 2017. Yapoli's mission is to transform the financial services sector by harnessing the power of open banking. And it was an absolute pleasure to learn more about their incredible growth journey over the last three years. In today's episode, we talk about the future of financial services And dig deeper into various aspects of Stefano's entrepreneurial journey, including the lessons he learned from raising a Series A round this year, and his advice for anyone looking to fundraise, why building a diverse team and positive company culture is so important, and why you should build a team that embraces learning and innovation, plus his candid insights into the day-to-day life as a CEO of a fast-growing, well-funded startup. Stefano was a fantastic guest, and it's not difficult to see how he has achieved so much in such a short amount of time with Yapoli. He shares some wonderful advice that is applicable to anybody working in or looking to move into the startup world, from CEOs looking to fundraise, to frustrated bankers looking to break into fintech. Stefano provides brilliant mentorship throughout this episode. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with the inspiring Stefano Facchino. Welcome Stefano, thank you so much for being a 40 minute mentor today. I would like to kick off as I always do with a 30 second overview of your CV, if that's okay?
1: Yes, of course, 30 seconds. Might be one minute. Anyway, (laughs) I'm Italian. I grew up uh, uh, changing city every year following my father's job. Uh, I studied information engineering and then I specialized in nanotechnology, which is uh, between physics and electrical engineering. I was uh, taking an academic path, uh, but my passion was actually creating things. So I left MIT and I started traveling in Silicon Valley, trying to meet people and understand how to move from academia into uh, startups. Unfortunately, I follow the wrong advice because a couple of people told me you should uh, specialize more, get an MBA and come back. I was stupid enough to listen to that. Uh, so I actually applied to banking and uh, I joined uh, Goldman Sachs uh, where I stayed for uh, six and a half, seven years almost. Uh, and this was my way of doing an MBA without paying for it. So uh, it was great to learn about uh, business. Uh, back then, I didn't know the difference between a trader, a sales, or investment banking. Uh, I only knew electronic and quantum physics. So I, I stayed there a bit too long, I, I would say. After that, in 2013, I left. I started working on several different uh, side projects, trying to learn about uh, uh, tech, until I came across a company called Algomi. It was trying to digitize corporate bond trading. I stayed there for three years as the chief product officer. Another experience after that in another fintech until I came across open banking, and it was a love at first sight.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, there's lots of fantastic things in there that I'm, I'm keen to explore. But you alluded to clearly uh, starting, you know, have a very strong educational background. And it sounded like you you could have easily gone down the academic path, but ended up at Goldman Sachs. So what ultimately made you decide to become an investment banker? And what for you were the, the kind of biggest learnings that you took from that time in your career?
1: So actually, the main reason I went into banking without even knowing what Goldman was was, uh, Uh, Was learning. When I left uni, I was uh, a geek with a huge passion for sport, but uh, fundamentally, I only knew maths, uh, physics, and electronics. So I thought, uh, as uh, joining in the consulting firm or uh, a trading firm, a way to get my MBA without uh, doing one. Uh, So I thought as (laughs) as my MBA plus master in finance and PhD in economics all in one. My initial plan was to stay only for two years and then go back to tech. But I actually, I ended up staying uh, uh, a bit longer.
0: A number of previous 40 Minute Mentors spent time at Goldman Sachs. It obviously has an incredible reputation. What was it about the firm that kept you there for six years? Clearly you, you have a thirst for learning, but what was it that made Goldman Sachs so unique?
1: To be completely honest, after two, three years, uh, I changed role. So my plan was anyway to leave after two, three years. But uh, I got lucky enough that despite the financial crisis, uh, I was uh, offered another role inside the company. So I said, you know what? Maybe I stay a bit longer, I learn something else. And so it was basically I did three years and three years, and I considered them almost two different jobs. Okay. And I I learned a lot about, uh, as I said, uh, finance, economics, uh, corporate world actually, which is very useful even now because we're trying to become a corporate at some point. So, outing should work. And also a lot about survival. Uh, Obviously, joining an investment bank in 2006 uh, and surviving the financial crisis was uh, a lot of uh, learning also from that perspective.
0: Yeah, I guess it teaches you a lot about resilience and, uh, and, and getting through tough times now. That's really, really interesting. So following Goldman Sachs, you pivoted into FinTech and into a CPO role, which is, is interesting at, at Algamy and then Red Deer. What was it about FinTech that particularly attracted you? And again, what were the, what were the main takeaways that I guess ultimately helped you before you set up the What were the, the main lessons from that, that period? So I have to be honest, actually. I was not attracted
1: by FinTech. I simply okay. thought uh, if I want to move from a capital market to something else, I need to be able to offer something. So, FinTech, where was I had some transferable skills, something I could offer. And uh, Algomi was trying to digitize corporate bond trading. Corporate bond trading was what I knew. And Algomi could offer me the opportunity to learn how to grow a tech company from 10 to 200 where I left. So trying to do the jump from investment banking into social network, I would have had less to offer to the company yeah. that was hiring me. So it was not just fintech itself. It was doing a gradual and smart move into a mm. new world.
0: No, absolutely. I'm sure there are probably lots of people listening to this that would wanting to make a similar pivot. We speak to candidates every day that want to escape banking and move into the the tech world. What advice would you give for people that were in a similar situation to yours and now want to move to the likes of your current company, Yappily, or, or other fintechs or tech institutions? What would be the tips you would give them?
1: So I, give, I would give uh, two tips. First, uh, do it. I'm happy to go to work every day. I'm happy to wake up at five and work 14 hours a day. Before I was not to do much, uh, short days, but it's an investment. Uh, you are investing in, in yourself. You are investing in uh, in your happiness. And don't assume that uh, just having Goldman Sachs uh, or some nice brand on your CV is sufficient. The first year you do a career transition is like a master. So you know, like doing an MBA or some other master. So you have to accept to be less senior, less paid, uh, and always think what value am I bringing. Why should they hire me? Uh, do I have any transferable skills? If not, uh, the company is investing in me, so I'll have to be even more grateful and flexible. After one year that you are in a tech space, uh, you will be a new person. You will have a new skill set, uh, new capability, and then you can start thinking about readjustment uh, to higher seniority or better compensation. But uh, obviously, if you perform, but uh, see the transition as an investment, not lateral. You might have a small dip, but it's an investment in your long-term happiness.
0: Yeah, I think that's brilliant advice. It's actually something we counsel candidates a lot. It's quite a big jump for a lot of people going from a very steady corporate role into, a, as you and I both know, uh, the ups and downs that come with entrepreneurialism. But uh, I think it's, a, it's probably a good sign. If, if, if that excites you, then it's probably the right thing to do. But you need to be willing to make those sacrifices. I, I think that's brilliant advice.
1: And um, I, I, that's why I don't call it sacrifice. I call it investment.
0: Investment. Yeah, I like that. That's a positive way of looking. <laughs> yeah, because
1: sacrifice uh, has a negative connotation investment means that at some point it will pay back and it will pay back very quickly
0: i really like that yeah i'm going to start using that word <laughs> thanks definitely and i agree i think there's something about Going back into work, maybe after a period of time where you you kind of maybe starting to plateau, where you don't have that Sunday night feeling about, oh, I've got to go to work, but actually you're excited because you're learning and you're developing. So it's, it's brilliant advice. Well, it clearly worked for you. And in in 2017, you ventured out on your own, starting Yapoli. So for those listeners that may not know what Yapoli does, can you tell us a little bit about the company and I guess what a typical day as founder and CEO looks like for you?
1: Absolutely, so before telling you what YAPIL is, let me tell you about the space we are in, because not everyone might be familiar with uh, open banking. So I will just spend 10 seconds introducing you to that. So uh, imagine all the data that is in your bank account when you log in, your name, your surname, your residential address, your email address, balance, all the transaction since uh, you open the account. The only way you have to transfer and use this information for your own benefit is printing a bank statement. This is 2020. This is how financial services are still disconnected. Now with open banking, you can actually transfer all of this information with few clicks and in few milliseconds. And if you think about all of this information, the use cases are hundreds. You can uh, use your financial transaction to get the loan in a few, few seconds rather than 40 days. You can uh, go to the council and prove your residential address. Uh, you can check you can afford a new car. However, before open banking, all of this information was trapped in your bank account. Same for payment. All the payments you can do online so, uh, standing order, international payment, uh, single wire transfer there are lots of payment opportunities. And the interesting things about most of them is that they are free and immediate especially in country like the UK, where you have instant payment. Now, imagine if uh, you could do an instant payment for free when paying on Amazon. Amazon at the moment is paying 2% on average for everything you buy. If this 2% was in your pocket, you would be 2% richer overnight. And this is a benefit that the open banking can bring, both from a data perspective and a payment perspective. And this is what we're trying to power. The problem in this space is that across Europe alone, there are 6,000 banks that implemented this API, so this way to get data or initiate payment in 6,000 different ways. There are 27 countries that uh, implemented this uh, European directive in a different way. So for a service provider, for a company that wants to leverage this revolution, it's very challenging to do it in-house. We take this technical barrier away. You connect with us in 15 minutes, and you can communicate with uh, thousands of banks after 15 minutes rather than taking years uh, uh, just to understand how to do it. So this tells you about, about, about Yappily. And uh, our objective basically is to power other company to bring innovation in the financial services. And uh, what's the life of a founder? Well, certainly it's not glamorous as people <laughs> think. Uh, we don't sleep uh, as much as we wish and we work very long hours, but uh, it's driven by the, the, by the passion. An interesting thing I, I share and it actually said, I gained 10 kilos since I started the company. Really, (laughs) It's a consequence of uh, spending long hours in front of the computer or in meetings.
0: I think that's a common feature of uh, startup life, isn't it?
1: (laughs) So there is no typical day other than the fact they are all very intense. Depending on the stage, on the phase uh, of the company, you might be working on uh, uh, new sales, uh, new partnership, interviewing candidates, thinking about the strategy. And I think this is the exciting part of the job. Every day you learn from your team, every day you learn from your clients, every day you are solving a new problem. And this is what I like about the
0: job. Fantastic. Yeah. I, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your role as a CEO, because it's, it, it's obviously a very aspirational position for a lot of people. When you think about your, your previous roles and the skills that you've picked up along the way, which do you feel you rely on most as a CEO? And, and I guess, what, what do you think makes a good CEO, you know, of, of a scale-up company?
1: <laughs> okay. I separate these into two questions then. First, my previous experience, and then the second part. So I guess uh, at Goldman, I obviously learned a lot how to deal with senior stakeholder. The 24-year-old person dealing with the CEO of big banks, you, you learn straight away how to interact with a huge enterprise. You learn about business, you learn about uh, how economy and corporate works. As a CPO of a tech company, however, is where I learned the most uh, in terms of uh, how to build a tech company. Uh, I joined, as I said, we were uh, very few people at algomi for example, and I left, we were almost 200. And ultimately a software company is as good as uh, the, the product that it sells. And you don't have clients if you don't have a strong product. But another thing, another perspective could be the, pro- the company is a product in itself. And uh, even the company goes through continuous uh, iteration and is evolving. So a lot of the CPO mentality, you can apply to the, the product of the company, but to the company itself on how you have to prioritize things and continuously think about the strategy of the company and grow and have a clarity on the direction. So definitely being a CPO helped me a lot. Regarding the second part of the question, I, I don't know if I know what a, a good uh, uh, CEO look like. Knowing that would make me assume I actually, I am a good one, uh, <laughs> which is not for me to, to judge.
0: Well, I've, I've certainly heard that you are. <laughs>
1: uh, that's very kind of you. I think, uh, the reality is that the, the drive, uh, the passion, the discipline are key. But also uh, on, the other, the, on the other side, uh, the openness uh, to be challenged every day is equally important. And I am challenged by my team every day. I am challenged by investors. So being open-minded is uh, super important. And it's linked to the capability of listening to the people around you and not taking it personally. Listen to every time an investor is telling you something, a client is telling you something, or a member of your team is, uh, is, uh, is telling you something. Ultimately, uh, it's important for a CEO is to have clarity on the direction and the vision and make sure that uh, the team knows the direction we are going. And uh, uh, I spend time to think about what's the best way to get there. So... Yeah the clarity of the direction is the fundamental part of my job.
0: Great insights there. Thanks, Stefano. And I think your point around listening is a really important one because, yes, we've seen startups and scale-ups of all different shapes and sizes with some fantastic leaders. We've also seen some that have struggled, and I think often that comes where they don't necessarily listen and that's not necessarily because they're that way inclined it's just because you know the 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 stresses of the job they become quite fixated i think being able to listen and take criticism and react to it but also know when to stick to your guns is a sign of a good leader so yeah that's that, that those are really interesting insights i'm sure we'll have people listening to this who have ideas and desires to start their own business one day what for you was the turning point that convinced you to start yappily and when did you know that it was kind of too good an opportunity to, to miss
1: so personally i was um, blown away by the social impact of uh, open banking as i was uh, mentioning uh, at the beginning how this will uh, transform my financial services uh, as we know them today so it was like uh, being hit by a train If you think about it, uh, society is super well connected, but uh, financial services is quite disconnected. There are 2 billion people, which are still unbanked. Payment, as we were saying, still costs uh, 2% on average. Getting a mortgage still uh, takes up 40 days on average in a country as developed as the UK. So in general, banking generates 4.5 trillion revenue a year, but has huge barrier to entry. So I saw in open banking, the opportunity of taking this barrier down and create a world where uh, payment can cost a hundred times less and uh, everyone can be 2% richer overnight or when you can get a loan in uh, a few seconds. And especially in this difficult time, uh, availability and access to capital is important and where you don't need to print a bank statement to prove your address. So for me, it was uh, mind-blowing when I heard yeah. about uh, Open Banking the first time. And uh, in my previous years, uh, previous at least four years, I had several, let's say, good ideas. or I consider them good. And, uh, but they were always a side occupation to a main job. And at a certain point, actually, I was working with uh, three friends at something that I think it was an amazing idea. And we were working weekends and nights. But... Uh, Without the full commitment, this was never taking off. So this time I thought, I love it. Uh, it's great. I have to put full commitment. So I started a few days after. And my uh, thinking was a worst case scenario in six to nine months, I will find another job. But I have to give 100% of myself to this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's so important. I, I was the same when I set JVM up. I didn't feel like I had anything to lose and that I'd probably learn more in six to nine months sort of trying to start and grow a business than I would, you know, in my previous roles which is in a corporate which I, I got a lot out of the experience but you're just forced to develop so many more skills and and also leadership qualities. So that really resonates with me. Um, I think when you would have started Yapoli, you probably only had a, a handful of competitors in in the open banking space and I guess you would have really had to think about how you differentiate from them. So what is, for anyone listening that's really interested in this space, how do Yapoli kind of continue to pull themselves apart from the competition.
1: So let me challenge you first about what you just said. So I think, yes, back then there were uh, only a few open banking companies, but even today, the number of players in the space is still small. Mm. A lot of people use open banking as a buzzword as they were using blockchain or AI before blockchain. So open banking is used to describe uh, a change in financial services but a lot of them are not actually in our space or competitor. The reality, if you think about it, uh, actually, let me make you a comparison. Think about 2010 when Stripe Mm. started to operate. There were hundreds of payment companies. Look at Stripe now. 2012, two years after Stripe, Checkout was founded. Look at them now. So, it's not, uh, I don't think compared to that, open banking is crowded at all. Quite the opposite. I would say there are Really, a handful number of company, which uh, are uh, say doing something similar to us, and then as you said, this question of uh, differentiating uh, yourself uh, and making your offer uh, unique, and make sure that the clients understand the uniqueness of it. And very often, the differentiation is not obvious to you day one. It's something that you mold, uh, learning more from your clients learning more from the market open banking is a new space that we are creating yesterday now and tomorrow so a lot of the differences between us and the competitor didn't weren't there the day one maybe i understood them six nine months in the journey with lots of people challenging me are you doing that actually i'm doing it like that ah that's very different from uh, how, how other people are doing from a Yappily perspective, how our focus and how we think we are different is, is about the quality of what we do. We are an infrastructure company. People build product on top of our platform. So we think that in the long term, it's all about the quality of what we do. So if uh, we offer shaky foundation, we will lose clients. So in the short term, uh, there might be companies which have uh, a stronger marketing presence, that will uh, be better known than we are. But I am 100% sure that uh, in the medium to long term, people will uh, recognize uh, that the quality is the most important thing. And uh, we will come as one of the leader.
0: Yeah, I have no doubt about that. <laughs> and I think it, what this has been proved by the fact that during lockdown, you achieved uh, an amazing feat, which is raising your series, a $30 million round. So to do that in a pandemic is pretty impressive, especially, am I right to believe that you actually got COVID-19? Did you, were you unwell during the, this period? Yeah,
1: actually? Yes. I had uh, I had uh coronavirus, uh, I got pneumonia, so. Oh. Not, oh, the light, really? not the light version. Um,
0: oh, I'm so sorry. How did you cope? I mean, you, trying to keep the business going during that period when you were so unwell, how, how, that must have been such a struggle. <laughs>
1: it's interesting because uh, while it was happening, I wasn't 100% sure it was it, but it was the first time in my life that I had a pain in my lungs together with fever, and uh, I was making noise while breathing. So I had... I, I thought it was it.
0: Yeah, the it's, thing, yeah. it's
1: only only one month after when I did the antibody test, I was hundred percent. Let's say I was confident that was it. How I managed it, I kept working, and I just I was quite worried about um, the direction of uh, the symptoms. But uh, I actually didn't share much uh, with the team uh, because I simply wasn't sure, and I didn't want them to worry.
0: Wow, wow, amazing. Well, I'm I'm very pleased to see you looking so well. What I can only imagine is quite a traumatic period, but yeah, as we alluded to, you still despite being so so sick were able to close this round and you have some incredible investors from Lake Star to Local Globe. What advice do you have for other first-time CEOs like yourself who are who are raising funds? from VCs because it's, it's a, it's a challenging experience, a wonderful if it comes off, but something I'm sure people listening would, would benefit from your, your insights on.
1: Maybe I would, I have have, never two or three advice. The first one, and my sounds obvious is uh, do not uh, optimize for valuation, but uh, for success likelihood. And this means that uh, always look for the best partners. You will be working with them until the end of the journey with the company. So try to spend time with them, see how you feel when you're in a room, if you can challenge them and uh, uh, get the feeling, would you be comfortable in WhatsApping them on a Sunday morning to talk about doubt or you don't have the good, good vibe uh, while chatting with them. They have to become an extended part of the company. And especially for me as a solo founder, I, actually, I interact on a daily basis with my investors. We have WhatsApp group, uh, we speak on the phone. Uh, so the chemistry and the human connection is super important. That's uh, my perspective, the most important thing. Choose your partners as well. The second is uh, network, uh, network, network. Sounds, again, quite uh, obvious. Uh, but especially at the beginning of your journey, you will not have a VC network. You might know two or three and you think it's enough. It's not. You will meet uh, a lot of people and every meeting if what you say is interesting will lead to two three others and you might have 50 meetings and only the 51 one will be interested in investing but it will be worth it so at the beginning of uh, the journey meet a lot of people is a good way of developing your network but also to learn about yourself and what you do not know all of these people meet uh, the Stripe, the checkout we were mentioning before. So they can give you super important advice. So see the funding around as a learning opportunity of uh, to learn what you are not doing well and where you should improve. Because very often you're so self-absorbed on your company that uh, having outside inputs and challenge, let say, happen less frequently. And so having access to experienced investors, that uh, challenge you, it's, uh, it's not only a funding opportunity, it's a learning opportunity. Maybe the last point is, uh, as a founder, you're always raising. So even the moment that you close a funding round, think about uh, which one are the investor you want 18 months from now investing in you and start building the relationship. Uh, so when time will come, they will uh, know you, they, they've seen you deliver, they have been following your journey, and it would be a much easier conversation.
0: Thank you. The brilliant insights. And I'm sure any future or current CEOs that are fundraising will, will really benefit from those. You recently spoke to, to Digital Bulletin about how you'll be using some of that investment capital to expand the team globally. Can you tell us a little bit about the culture that you've built to Yappily. It's, it's a topic that's very close to my heart, given what we do at JBM. Uh, but it would be great to understand that and see how, sort of, how that's evolved as you've expanded the business and what your aspirations are. Because I know you have big ambitions sort of, for the future. Like I guess
1: many of the entrepreneurs, if you're not a big dreamer, you're, uh, you're in the... You're it's in great the- to dream. Like- <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, culture is something that uh, you would always like to invest more but the reality is that most of the time it comes spontaneous. It's a consequence of uh, how the leadership behaves and how these uh, propagate across uh, everyone in the company. Yeah. So I can tell you my objective on uh, how I would like the company culture to be. And I hope this is also what the employee are feeling. So first of all, I want a very transparent company, a company where honest feedback uh, it's, uh, uh, it's something that is welcome and happen every day. I am strong believer in marginal improvement. So if we listen to other feedbacks and we improve uh, a little bit every day, at the end of the year, we are all 365 times better. I want a company which is uh, uh, in collaboration. Ultimately, if we don't work effectively as a team, we are not as productive and the quality of what we do is not, uh, is not good enough. I want people which are humble. And uh, I actually, when I started the company, I put it as one, at the, one of the first criteria to hire people. And I, I think uh, the reason that's so important for me is because we have a lot to learn from one another. And uh, I don't like arrogant people. I like uh, people that are easy to work with and they are always willing to learn from the others. What's very important also, especially nowadays, is the diversity uh, that we have in the company. If we have people that have all different ideas in a room, they will come up with the best idea possible. If they all think the same, mm-hmm. they, there was probably not even a reason to meet because they will come up with the same idea that everyone entering the room with. So diversity is a strength in a company. And I personally do not tolerate any type of uh, discrimination uh, sexual, ethnicity, religion, in general, unfortunately, society very often is teaching us to discriminate. And I want to make sure that uh, as a company, we are much better than that. And maybe the last thing is that uh, I want uh, curiosity to be uh, one of the principles. Uh, intellectual curiosity is a fundamental trait of successful people. If you are not interested in learning new things or not interested on in how to improve, you will never grow. So I want uh, a curious mindset Mm -hmm. from from everyone. Just to conclude, I guess, on the culture, as I said, it comes very often top-down and uh, you have to be a living example. And I think I am very driven and disciplined and persistent. So I hope uh, that these traits of mine are uh, motivating for my team and uh, help them push their own boundaries as well
0: yeah it's, it certainly sounds like it and uh, to be honest with you those sorts of qualities you alluded to and values are exactly exactly what most of our candidates want to see in a leader and in a culture so uh, yeah it certainly gets my vote and i think particularly the points around diversity inclusion and actually being humble i think that's something that's overlooked at times in in the world we live in you know where everyone's driven and ambitious and and wanting to be the next unicorn but i personally agree there's the first thing i look for when we hire for jbm is is, are you a good person? And can we learn from each other and what you do right by your teammates, your colleagues, those that you manage? So I think that's a fantastic point. I'm sure we're going to have people listening to this who are entrepreneurial and good people as well, and who want to build a culture like Yapley are doing. But then there's also, I guess, the pressure of balancing developing the product so how do you strike a balance between the two sort of evolving uh, the business from a technical perspective but also being a good people leader and and driving that culture so i guess uh, it's
1: difficult but feasible and uh, keep in mind not everyone might have the product or the interpersonal skills so very often you might be very good at one but not at the other and i see Building a company almost as building a puzzle. Always look for the complementary piece. So, a good way to achieve, uh, let's say, the culture that you would like to have or the product you would like to have is to keep hiring people which are complementary to you and they can help you achieve that. So, if you want to focus on the product, make sure there is someone else in the company to focus on the culture. So, you can give your inputs but there is someone else driving as well. If you want to be the culture person, you will not have uh, a lot of time maybe on the product. Hire someone uh, for which the strength is the product. So I think uh, thinking about complementarity of pieces as you build the company is the best way to achieve all of your objectives
0: great advice you've now been in business for three years and you've gone through this kind of hyper growth you know things are going super well you've got fantastic investors but it's i know the startup living is not always positive so if if it would be good just to hear a little bit about what are some of the challenges that you've overcome and if you could wind the clock back is there anything you would do differently if you would start again Hmm.
1: that's a difficult one i guess uh, i wouldn't change anything because I think our current strength are the consequence of our past mistakes and all the lessons that we have learned in the last three years. So there are certainly things that uh, I would have loved to do better and faster from day one. But potentially, if we have done things perfectly from day one, we would have not learned a lot yeah, of lessons. So yeah, probably the answer is uh, no, because we are the consequence of what we've done in the last three years. And I'm happy right. on... I'm happy about uh, where we are now. So
0: yeah, constantly learning. No, that's that. That's fair enough. Well, Stefano, it's been it's been a pleasure. We're getting towards the end of our conversation. I always like to finish these podcast episodes with 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 three questions, and the first one is around mentorship. You're on the 40 minute mentor. We believe in the power of mentorship. Tell me a bit about your experience. Do you have a mentor yourself, and um, what does mentorship mean to you? So.
1: I might disappoint you on this one.
0: <laughs> oh, we've been, we've been getting on so well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Apologies for that. So unfortunately, I've never had a mentor in, in my life, at least not a formal one. I've always tried to learn from everyone. So you can actually say that everyone around me has been a mentor. My approach is that I try to absorb other people's strengths. So from one person, I might learn sales skills. From someone else, I will learn interpersonal skills. From someone else, I will learn product and what is the best practice for product. But uh, I've never had someone formally mentoring me. I hope to find it one day. It's never too late. But uh, so far, everyone around me has been, say, mentoring me.
0: I think it's a great answer. And it, it certainly doesn't disappoint me. I think everyone answers this question differently. Some have very formal ones, I have multiple mentors, which I kind of lean on for different aspects of my life. So I think that it makes a lot of sense. Looking forward, uh, Stefano, in terms of goals for the rest of the year and into 2021, tell us a little bit about what what you've got in store at Yappily and also personally, like what, what would you personally like to achieve? Okay, I start personally and then I tell you from a Yappily perspective. So
1: linking to the previous joke, I hope to lose the ten kilos I gained. <laughs> now that we have a bit more of a, let's say, a bigger company and more structure, I, I would love to find more time to go for a run or Good to do stuff. some sport. <laughs> uh, it, it helps uh, with the, um, let's say, mental balance and, and, and well-being. And also, having a bit more time for myself could help me finding the space to think about uh, what type of CEO would you actually need in five years. And how can I grow into that? I want to make sure that the company doesn't grow, grow faster than myself. Yeah So from a personal perspective, uh, more time to become what I need to be for the company, but also potentially to lose some weight and <laughs> do a bit more sport. And well, from a company perspective, I keep thinking about uh, how to, to grow while uh, making sure the person we have now, the people we have now uh, are happy. So how to keep growing basically with the amazing team we have. And I look forward to work with more and more company. One of the best part of uh, my job is that we power other companies, right? So I love uh, meeting our clients. uh, And so I hope that for 2021, I keep uh, meeting company with amazing idea and we keep helping them to bring to, to reality.
0: Brilliant. Well, I, I wish you the very best of luck with your personal goals, and also uh, for, for for the next year for Yapli. I have every faith it's going to be a fantastic year for for the business. And yeah, it's been it's been a real joy hearing a, a bit more about your story, and I'm sure everyone listening will have really benefited from your insights. We, we like to finish this with a final question, and that's around the last kind of piece of advice for someone that is thinking about a career move. What, what final tip would tip you, would you leave, leave them with? with? <laughs> okay. So,
1: career change is not, as uh, James was saying, a sacrifice. Career change is an investment. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) My suggestion is uh, invest in yourself because uh, you will find yourself, maybe after one year of transition, being happy again to go to the office and being happy with your job. So, see the career change as an investment, not as a sacrifice.
0: Brilliant advice and a great place to end this. Stefano, thank you so much for being a fantastic 40-minute mentor. We wish you the best. and, And yeah, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, James, for having me. Thank you. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at infojbmc.co.uk. At Thanks again for all your support.